Section 12 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 32. The Einstein Theory. Part 1. Are things what they appear? Let us see what some of the startling ideas of Einstein are, which have upset many of our fixed notions about things. We have been taught that parallel lines never meet, that the shortest distance between two points is represented by a straight line. According to the Einstein theory, what we think are straight lines are really curved lines. We shall understand this point better later on. Meanwhile, suppose you draw a straight line on a sheet of paper. To you, looking only at the paper, the point of the pencil will have traveled in a straight line of, suppose, a foot long in a second. To an observer in the sun, it will have moved through space not only with the motion of your hand, but through the vast curve of the Earth's spin around its axis and the still vaster curve of its rotation around the sun. Where you see a short straight line, he will see a curve some forty miles in length. Which is right? Both. The distance, as well as the straightness or curvature described by a moving point, is relative. They depend on the observer. Motion and direction are relative. They depend on the observer. A body alone in empty space cannot be said, with any meaning, to be in motion for motion implies that it is getting nearer to or farther from some other point. Again, if there are two such bodies which start moving side by side, but at different speeds, an observer on the swifter body will see the other apparently receding from him. To an outside observer, it will appear to be following in his wake. Which is right? Both. Motion and direction are relative. They depend upon the observer. If you were sitting in a railway carriage with the window blinds drawn, the train running smoothly on a straight track with unchanging velocity, you would find it impossible to tell by any mechanical means whether the train was moving or not. You cannot detect in such circumstances any motion without reference to some outside object. Further, you may have noticed that if you look through the carriage window at a passing train on an adjoining line, you are unable to tell whether that train or your own is in motion. In this way, we are often puzzled to say whether some train is moving with us, or against us, or standing still. All motion is relative. All this is preliminary. We shall see the bearing on Einstein's argument later. Space also is a matter of relativity. What would become of space if you took everything out of it? It would have no meaning. We cannot form any idea of empty space. There is no such thing as absolute space. If the whole of our visible universe were compressed into the size of an orange, we should be quite unaware of any change. Our measures, reduced in proportion, would still, for example, show the sun to be 93 million miles away. Size is relative. It depends on the observer. It is our measuring rods which create space for us. It is by measures 
we determine the position of material bodies in space. We can only measure the distance from a body at a certain point of space to a body at some different point. And so with time. Has it any reality? Quote, what would become of time if nothing ever happened? End quote. Time is merely a local affair. As the measuring rod creates space, so it is clocks which create time. We cannot form any idea of absolute time or of absolute space. As we shall see, we make a wrong supposition if we suppose that an interval of time and an interval of space between two given phenomena are always the same for every observer, whatsoever and whatever the conditions of observation may be. We cannot measure time itself. We can only measure by the motion of something over a space, as a clock hand or a planet. But, as we have seen, motion and space are not real existences, but relative. They depend on the observer, and so does time. If some malicious spirit were to amuse itself by making all the phenomena of the universe a thousand times slower, we should not, when we awake, have any means of detecting the change. Yet every hour recorded by our watches would be a thousand times longer than the hours had previously been. Men would have lived a thousand times as long, yet they would be unaware of the fact. We shall see in a moment that time and space, according to Einstein's theory, are to be regarded as mere properties which we ascribe to objects. One more point. Quote, the dimensions of an object, its shape, the apparent space occupied it, depends upon its velocity. End quote. The size and shape of any body depend upon the rate and direction of its movement. One of the most revolutionary things about the Einstein theory has to do with Newton's law of gravity. A new view of gravity. Einstein thinks that gravity is not, as Newton held, a force, but a property of space. That all the effects of gravity may exist where there is no attraction is best shown by his own striking illustration. Just imagine a chamber, like that of the projectile in Jules Verne's story, alone and motionless in empty space. A passenger therein will have no weight, his feet will not press downward on the floor. If he throws a ball into the air, it will rise to the roof and remain there. There is no force of attraction to bring it down again. A weight hanging on a spring balance will not stretch the spring. Now suppose that the chamber begins to move with a velocity which is continually increasing at the same rate as that of a body falling on the earth. The floor will press upward against the passenger's feet. It will catch up the ball, which will appear to be falling. The balance, drawn upwards against the inertia of the weight, will measure its amount precisely. There is no possible experiment which the passenger can make which will show him whether the projectile is moving with an accelerated motion or whether it is at rest, as we imagine we are, on the surface of an attracting body. This last, indeed, is what he will imagine. But he may be under a complete illusion, and so may we. This is Einstein's theory of equivalence. It shows that gravitation may have more than one explanation, and this leads us to his own explanation, which is an altogether new one. Newton thought the apple fell because the earth exerts upon it an attractive force. 
Einstein considers that it falls because wherever there is matter, space itself is curved just as the space we see in a very slightly concave mirror where there are no straight lines at all and where, if any body is in motion, it must move along a curve. Suppose a man in a closed room discovers that a marble placed anywhere against a wall rolls towards a hassock in the center of the room. It will appear to him that the hassock is attracting it. Yet the fact may be that the floor is slightly concave like a very shallow basin, and the hassock has no connection whatsoever with the motion of the marble. Just in the same way the earth may have no direct connection with the falling of the apple, though it seems to us to be the cause of it. We are asked to believe that space is curved, that all things moving through it move in curves, all things, including light. Einstein's theory asserts that the actual reality which underlies all the manifestations we experience in the physical universe is a blend of time, space, and matter. This trinity is comprised in one actual reality. All bodies move through space-time and they move in the straightest possible tracks. Motion is merely simultaneous change of the position in space and time. Einstein's theory explains gravitation as distortion of the world of space-time due to the presence of material objects. He does not explain how or why a body can distort space-time. The theory explains gravity, not as a force of nature, but as a property of space-time. On Einstein's view of gravitation, the Earth moves in an elliptical path around the Sun, not because a force is attracting on it, but because the world of space-time is so disturbed by the presence of the Sun that the path of least time through space is the elliptical path observed. There is therefore no need to introduce any idea of force of gravitation. The more matter is present, the more space is curved, and so it happens that the light from a star just behind the Sun will come bending around it like a train round a railway curve, and fall upon our eyes or cameras. That is, when the sun's glare is shut out during an eclipse, we can see or photograph the star. It will appear to be shifted from its true position. How far shifted? Einstein has worked out. At the last eclipse, the stars appeared where he had predicted. Number one, the curvature of space. One of the great difficulties of Einstein's theory is, of course, the assumption that space is curved so that straight lines in this curved space are not the straight lines that Euclid talked about. But we can see how this may be possible if we first consider the matter in its simple form. Let us imagine intelligent creatures who exist in only two dimensions, that is, they have length and breadth, but no thickness, a sort of very intelligent flatfish. Suppose they exist on a plane, like the surface of this sheet of paper. Then the geometry they construct will be like Euclid's. They will find, for instance, that a space cannot be enclosed by two straight lines. You must have at least three straight lines, a triangle, to enclose a space. And they will see that a straight line can go on forever and ever. And also it will be quite easy for them to draw any number of lines parallel to one another. 
But now suppose that these little flat creatures are transported to the surface of a sphere. What sort of geometry will they now construct? Now, first of all, we must remember that, by hypothesis, they have no notion of a third dimension. They cannot go inside or outside their sphere. They have no notion that any space exists except the actual surface of this sphere. What would they call a straight line? They will say that a straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Well, let us take any two points on the surface of the sphere and join them by the shortest line, keeping to the surface of the sphere. This line will be, from our three-dimensional point of view, an arc of a circle, and no parallel straight lines can be drawn to it by the creatures on the sphere. Further, let us select two points at opposite ends of a diameter of the sphere. Through these two points, an infinite number of half-circles can be drawn, all of the same length and all shorter than any other kinds of curves uniting these two points. That is to say, from the point of view of the flat inhabitants, an infinite number of different straight lines can pass through these two points. And any two of these straight lines enclose a space, just as any two lines of longitude on the Earth, running from the north to the south poles, enclose a space. Now these properties of the straight line contradict the axioms of Euclid. The geometry developed by these creatures will not be Euclid's geometry. If they are very expert geometricians, they will say that their space must be curved, as we know it is, and they will be able to measure how much their space is curved by making measurements on the figures they can draw. Now what Einstein asks us to do is to imagine something similar about our own space. Actual measurements of our space show that its geometry is not Euclidean. We can, therefore, as if by an analogy, talk about the curvature of our space. Now there's another important analogy between our space and the surface of the sphere. What happens to a straight line on the sphere when it is produced? It goes all around the sphere and comes back to the point it started from. It cannot, that is to say, go on forever and ever. The curvature of the surface bends it around. The space these creatures live on is a finite space. It does not go on forever and ever. At the same time, it is unbounded. There are no barriers. The flat creatures can wander about in their space as long as they like without ever meeting an obstacle to their further progress. Nevertheless, although unbounded, their space is not infinite. Einstein says that the same distinction holds good of our space. Our space, he says, is finite. The ray of light from a star would go on until it went all around the universe and came back to its starting point. But our space is also unbounded. We could wander about it forever. We should never come to noticing thus far and no farther. But when we had wandered far enough, going quite straight, as it would appear to us, we should come back to our starting point. End of section 12